if I've not met you before, my name is Scott Wildley. A lot of times I'm here with my wife as well. And unfortunately, uh, she's with my son at a soccer tournament. She sends her hello, and she wants to be here. Um, I've been friends with Andy for a while. We've actually worked together, and we're still great supporters of one another. And so if you love Andy as much as I do, and by the way, I, he's on vacation. He's had a great basketball camp. It's so cool that he did that. It reflects his personality. I love Andy, too. I miss Andy as well. And I do this every time, but it's so true. I keep thinking of new comparisons. And so I love sauces and condiments. So today my comparison has to do with those. And if Andy and I were condiments, he would definitely be a gourmet artisan aioli. Is that how you pronounce it? Sorry, I mispronounced it. And that you'd want with a good steak or if you're vegetarian jackfruit, just something that's very, you know, just rich and savory and wonderful. And I'm a little bit more like ketchup. But you kind of need ketchup, right? I mean, your kids have it sometimes, even if it's not the best for you. It touches every flavor on the tongue. It's a really good condiment as well. It's a staple. Uh, but I'm really glad that I get to be here with you this morning. I want to start off with a story. Many of you know Andy and I had the privilege of going to Israel together a few months ago. It was in April. And it was, it was in many ways just a life-forming experience, but it's hard to say exactly how. It's, a lot of times that's how life-forming things work. You have an experience. It's a time when heaven and earth meet. In some ways, it was intense. Uh, Andy and I were roommates. Maybe you didn't hear that yet. And so we knew going into this trip together that we're either going to not talk to each other for six months or we're going to become any uh, better friends. And I haven't spoken with Andy since our trip. Just kidding. No, we, we've actually, we met I think a week later. Just we, we, It's almost like we really need to meet again and talk again. But uh, there's a picture I want to show of you of this uh, a place we got to visit. It overlooks the Sea of Galilee. And in my mind, Galilee was this big ocean-type lake, whatever it is. It's a sea after all in Scripture. It's described that way as time. But it's, it's actually not that big. And what you're looking at is the northern part of the Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Gennesaret. And Jesus did 90, 95% of his ministry in what you're looking at by that water. All the towns that he did ministry in. So that was just remarkable. So we're on what's known as the Cliffs of Arbel, and it's, it's meant to give a scope of what are the next four or five days going to be like for us as we literally walk in the footsteps of Jesus. Just hard to describe. You really have to be there. I hope everyone can go there at least once in their lifetime. And so it's in, in this particular cliff, there's boulders. You can look over the cliff in somewhat of a safe way. There's a trail and more boulders. So I get up on top of a boulder. I get my phone out. I'm taking a video. I'm giving commentary in this video to send back to my family. I'm trying to give them like a step-by-step -step, uh, part of the trip because we miss each other, and it's a way of them going on the trip with me. And um, the boulder is about this, about three feet high off the ground that I'm on, and then there's a trail, and then there's more boulders. So I'm taking this video, I'm getting down, Andy calls my name, so as I'm trying to put stop my video and look at Andy, I trip. Yes, it, and it, it was like that. And it wasn't just like, oh, you trip, my feet came out from under me, and I went uh, horizontal. So I was parallel with the ground. Andy is watching the whole thing, and it was kind of one of those life passes before you quickly moments. It's like time stops, and yet it was a millisecond probably. So uh, because I was parallel with the ground, I 
part of me landed on a boulder. So I felt it was only three feet, but with gravity and I weigh a lot, that's momentum, right? And so this arm, thankfully, probably saved my life. And so this landed on one boulder, and then this leg landed on another boulder. And everyone thought, like, this, this guy's done. Like, he's, he's going to have to be lifelighted out of here or something. And I get up, and I'm bleeding. And everyone's making sure I'm okay. And we weren't quite sure yet. And had a lot of blood where this kind of braced my, my fall and protected my head. And then on this shin, not to be too graphic, I had a hematoma. Is that what it's called, nurses, medical staff out there? Hematoma. It was the size of an avocado. It was huge. And people assume my leg was broken, so okay, we can shuttle them to a hospital. But I was able to walk, and it's like, well, I don't know if it's broken. But then you have adrenaline, because strangely, I was in no pain. And they were saying, well, you probably have adrenaline, <laughs> because you, you maybe almost died. And we're not even halfway through our trip. That's another note. So that would have been a real bummer for me and everyone else if I would have gotten hurt and had to do the trip. Long story short, I'll cut out the rest of the graphic details. But I did not have a single broken bone. I had an uncomfortable hematoma and, and just some blood and bruises and nothing that bandages and, and, you know, waking up in the middle of the night needing ibuprofen couldn't fix, right? And even though it sounds cliche, it sounds even as a pastor saying something like this, kind of like over-spiritualizing a situation, perhaps, I, I felt like a miracle had happened. Because when people saw me fall, they were like, you should be hurt worse than you are. And part of it could be explained with just physics and chemistry and biology. And Andy's always said, I, you know, I have farmer strength. I'm kind of a farmer type body. Big, my mom used to say I was husky and big boned. So it could be that. I just have really dense bones and they're hard to break. And even to this day, my elbow will wake me up at night. So it's been three months. My body isn't fully healed. But thankfully, I was able to continue the trip. Ant and I were roommates, and we didn't hurt each other. Like, we, 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 we did okay with each other. And a couple of points I want to bring out about the story that is relevant today. The first one is, when I mentioned this, this, this experience, and I, I genuinely felt like it was a miracle that I wasn't hurt worse than I was, what does that feel like to you? What does that sound like to you in your head? your heart, your mind, and your soul. And you don't have to share this yet with anybody. But what's your instant reaction? Like, wow, someone think a miracle happened to them. What's your instant reaction? And the other one is, some of you may have heard or read about this book, that the body keeps score. The body keeps score. And what that means is whenever our bodies go through a trauma, we might have figured it out in our heads. We might have being able to explain, this is why this happened. And maybe it's a relational trauma, maybe it's a physical trauma, maybe it's both. And we can, in our cognitive minds and senses, we can explain things, and then in our minds, it's like, oh, I can move on with life, I'm healthy again. But the point of the book is, well, the body keeps score. The body keeps score. It doesn't matter what your mind thinks about it. There will there'll be times when you'll go into a room, a song will come on, a certain type of person will say something to you, and you we've all experienced this because we're all human, and you will just tense up, and your the trauma will immediately come back. Maybe it was when you were 5, maybe it was when you were 25, maybe it was when you were 35, 45, whatever. And because of those things, because the body keeps score, we have to be not only thoughtful about that, but, can, but ask God, God, where, where have we experienced trauma? Where do we need healing? And how is our community a part of 
uh, this healing? What is needed in that? And drawing from uh, Ephesians 4, and we're going to continue Ephesians today, and some of the principles and truths and experiences that Paul is communicating to this young group of churches, when you consider these two points, that we need something outside of ourselves. We need something outside of ourselves. There's things that our heart needs, our mind needs, our soul needs, our body needs that we can't generate on our own. It's a fact. Even though we can all probably uh, trick ourselves into thinking that I can do this. We need something outside of ourselves. And the body needs healing. Our body needs healing. And we each have a part in that. And that's essentially what Paul is getting at. Um, I have the privilege of, of meeting with a person. I've met with this person off and on for probably eight months now, maybe nine months, not, not a year. And I say it's a privilege because this person has opened their life story to me, and they consider me a safe person to really share some things that I don't know if I would share with other people. It's just a very vulnerable situation, and it's, it's a gift in that sense. And they have a lot of family of origin trauma, which we all do on some level, maybe different degrees. And they have a lot of church of origin trauma. I don't know if anyone in this room has church of origin trauma. And sometimes that can be hard to admit because we're in a body of believers right now. (laughs) And it can get uncomfortable. Nonetheless, after about seven months of meeting, there's a point in our conversation, and I don't, I don't try to solicit any, I'm, I'm really trying to express love for this person through, through listening and validating some of the trauma. For example, there's things they've shared about God they don't believe in, and at times they'll say, I don't believe in that God either. Like what you just described, I, I don't think that's who God is in, in any way, shape, or form, and, and I can love this person that way. But at this one point in, in our conversation, uh, this person unsolicited said, I really miss church community because they're not a part of a church right now. I really miss church community. Even though all this stuff I just shared with you, I never want to experience again. I really miss this, this meaningful, purposeful group of people. And, and, and this person thankfully still believes in um, a creator God and, and Jesus, right? And so to me, that just made my heart... Uh, I was one curious, but then it made me think of these principles that we're talking today. And to sum it all up, we all need and want. We all want and need a Christ-empowered community, something outside of ourselves. And we all need community. Every human being on this earth needs things that they can't generate on their own. We all need community. I want to reflect on a few questions that we'll put up here just for a, a moment to get you in this idea of thoughtfulness and reflection and considering what could God have for you today and what God could have for us today. What does a healthy Christ-empowered community look like, feel like, sound like, act like? Basically, the fullness of our human experience. What would it look like? Even, Even in your mind, kind of dream a little bit. Another question to consider, and it Maybe if there's one of these that stands out to you for time, you can maybe write some notes down. You can focus on that question. What is God's part in empowering community, and what is your part? What is God's part? What is your part? This one's really vulnerable. I would only share this with someone that you feel safe with, but do you, do you sense, feel empowered in this particular community? And then 
as Andy's going to teach in later on in the series, what strategies, or as Paul says, flaming arrows, would the adversary use against this community? What kinds of, what kinds of ways do you think the, the adversary, the evil one, would use to thwart this community becoming all that God designed it to be. So we're going to take a couple minutes to uh, just consider these some of these things, and then we're going to think, pair, and share. I realize that can be kind of uncomfortable, uh, but I think, well, I think this community has developed these muscles over the years, which I love. So in a couple minutes, I'll say, hey, it's time to share with uh, a neighbor, kind of in a think, pair, and share, and then I'll draw outside of that. So reflect on these questions, and if there's one that stands out, I'd encourage you to spend time with that one, and then I'll let us know when it's time to share. Two minutes goes by quickly when you're having fun. Uh, go ahead and think, parent, share with someone, so a neighbor, someone next to you, um, if there's one of those that stood out, and just share about a minute each what that was like, what you feel drawn to. Thirty more seconds, thirty more seconds. It probably feels like I'm cutting you off because I am, <laughs> but uh, for sake of time, let's 
bring it back. And hopefully this will encourage you to continue the conversation over lunch today, tonight, in your own journaling. And the best kind of incisive questions are like that. They, they are like a parfait or an onion, if you will. They, you, you have one conversation about them, and then you have another conversation. You realize, like, wow, there's more to this. And you have another conversation, like, wow, there's more to this. Uh, but I also want to have a little bit of a, a, a group feedback really quickly. In terms of that first question, which was, uh, what healthy Christ, what does healthy Christ-empowered community look like, feel like, act like, sound like? Just popcorn a few, a few ideas. What, and, and they could be from your own personal experiences, which is fantastic, but what would that look like, a Christ-empowered community? What would be some of the ways it would look, act, sound, feel like? Not clicky. Not clicky. Fantastic. Yes. Generous. Generous. Yeah. Servant leadership. Servant leadership. Yeah. Non-judgmental. Non-judgmental. Yeah. Standing truth to power. Standing truth to power. Yeah. Present, yeah. Be good, do good. Be good, do good, yes. Loving. Loving, yep. I feel like you've read Ephesians 4 this week. Did Andy give this his homework? Yeah, there's so much in here, and unfortunately, way more than we can unpack today. We'll unpack a little bit. I'm going to read the first part of Ephesians 4. And here's some good news. One, everything we've listed is, is really the essence of what Paul is talking about. I'm not going to add uh, anything that you don't, you don't know in this. And as you continue to go through this passage today, it can be the gift that keeps on giving or this week um, as you consider the rest of the book of Ephesians. But it has so much to do with a Christ-empowered community that we all want and we all need. Even though uh, life can play tricks on us. Sometimes it may feel like, I don't want this or need this. Uh, but we all want it, and we actually do deep down in our core need it. So listen to how Paul is describing uh, this Christ-empowered community that we all want and need. Starting in uh, chapter 4, verses actually 1 through 16, I'll read the full kind of thought here, then give a little bit of commentary. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. What a setup that is, by the way. Wow. Be completely humble and gentle, Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and the Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one a grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says... He's quoting Psalm 68. When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave his gift to the people. What does he ascended mean except he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. 
That is a mouthful. All right. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blow here and there by every wind and teaching, by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every aspect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together to every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. I mean, taught a, talk about a community manifesto of sorts in terms of a Christ-empowered community. In all the places of Scripture, this is definitely one of those anchor passages along with the other prison letters, um, Philemon, Colossians, to, to, uh, as examples. And at this point, I want to give a little bit of background. I know Andy does. So, so if you can imagine if we're watching Netflix right now, previously on Ephesians, except there's no skip intro button, unfortunately for you. Uh, but this is a circular letter, most likely. We're not positive, but it, it's most likely a circular letter because of how it's written and its particular content, written to all these churches in the Asia, Asia Minor area, which was one of the richest regions of the Roman Empire. It was a major port city, population anywhere between 250,000 to a half a million people, which in the ancient world was humongous. And it was a complete cosmopolitan area, every kind of pluralistic multiplicity of religion and culture that you can imagine. That's where these kind of newly budded churches were happening. But in particular, for the church itself, there's a crossroads of essentially three uh, kinds of, of disparate types of people. The first would be faithful Jewish people who believe that Jesus was the Messiah. So they, you know, they would have started off in the synagogue, and that was Paul's strategy when he would plant these churches. He would start off in the synagogue because they know the story of God, and he's just completing that connection. This is the Messiah that you've been learned about, that you've been waiting for, etc., etc., etc. And they had all of these rituals that came with their specific expression of monotheistic religion. Then you had God-fearers who were Gentiles who never necessarily became circumcised but believed in essentially all the things that the Jewish people did. And then you had people who had converted from whatever their multiplicity of religious practices were, and they were legion. There were so many in that area. Whatever we think of today, it was at least uh, as, as much of a multiplicity of ideas, ideologies, religious beliefs back then. And they had a lot of power in people's lives. And just like you and me, if you think to a time maybe when you, when you first started to believe that maybe Jesus was the one I can follow, the one that loves my soul, the one whose presence I need and want and want to emulate, we are all coming from our own culture. Everyone here is enculturated with our, our various ideologies, religious beliefs, etc. I love the way that Andy put it. We all have these goggles on that we don't necessarily know that we have on that, are, that filter our particular upbringings, our values, our preferences, our politics, whatever it is. We all have that. So you have this confluence of these three groups, and it was very contentious. Not unlike it is today. <laughs> So for sake, for sake of illustration, and I, I realize that this could, this could feel a little uncomfortable. So sometimes it's okay to be uncomfortable. I'm not going to get too much into this. But just imagine you were at a dinner party of Christians, right? It, let's say that, uh, that Water's Edge and five months from now doubled in size, and you're having one of these connection dinners, and there's a lot of people you don't know, and you overhear a conversation, and in this one group in the corner, they're talking about how if Bernie Sanders isn't the next president, the whole country is just going to go in the toilet. 
And then you have another group in the, uh, the corner that says, man, what's happening to Trump is so unjust, and if he doesn't become the next president, the whole country's going to go down the toilet. Then you have everyone in between, and you have some people who they're, they're kind of joking, and, and maybe, maybe they're having some light cuss words, and it just seems normal, and maybe you're not comfortable with that, or maybe you're one of the ones that is using some light, light language like that, and it's fine. It's in your culture. Maybe you're having some other people there who are enjoying some beer and wine, and in your mind, it's like, I don't think it's okay for people to have beer and wine here, right? That, it, I'm, I'm explaining this just to get you in some mild, almost superficial uncomfortabilities of what it's like for a group of people to come together that probably wouldn't have any business being together had it not been for the person that they're there around, which is Jesus. So it was like that, but very also, in a sense, uh, contentious and explosive. And so what's beautiful, and we can miss this point because it does sound poetic, but especially in the Jewish culture, their sacred prayer was the Shema. So remember, this is the, this is the prayer that Jesus quotes and kind of novelly adds the verse in Leviticus 2 in Mark 12. When someone says, what, what's, the, what's the greatest commandment? What's the greatest law? Well, Jesus quotes the sacred prayer of the Jewish people that was really the bedrock of their life, their day, their rhythm. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body, soul, and spirit. And then he adds, and love your neighbor like yourself. So that's, that, that's what's in view, especially to the God-fears and the, the, the Jewish um, Messiah uh, group in this church. And then the Gentiles have probably connected something in their culture as well. But his main point was to tie them all together. And Paul was used to using hymns and things that the church was already practicing for oneness to bring them together. And he's saying, regardless of what these goggles are, there's something, there's a oneness that transcends this. And to protect this community and to protect our mission to the world, that oneness has to be paramount. It has to stay on top. It has to stay the priority. We have to guard against it. Like the proverb says, Above all else, guard your hearts in this oneness that transcends because we're made in God's image, all of us. Even someone who we think is our political or ideological or preferential enemy of whatever kind, they're also made in God's image, just as we are. And God is one. God is also a mystery. Thankfully, we can know God truly, but God is God and we are not. We can't know God fully, but we can know God truly. And God is one. And if we're made in God's image, and especially as Paul's metaphor here, that we are the body of Christ, if there's any sense that there's not oneness, it doesn't reflect God. Another way to put it, in 1 John, John, many think this is John the Apostle, whoever knows God knows love because God is love. If you're not loving your brother and sister, do you know God? It's kind of what, it's almost like a question. This oneness is, is more serious than I think we give credit to. Not, not like it's some test we're trying to pass or we're trying, not, not something that we're going to get in trouble, but it's, it's more of like, this is the source of our life and our love. And if God is one, we are to be one. And it's not even saying again that we need to try harder, and if we try harder, we can we can be like God. It's not necessarily saying like that. This is more of a, of a reflexive thing that Paul, Paul is pointing at. 
As we follow Christ and as we become more like Christ together, this is what it looks like because this is who God is. And oneness is just one of those reflections of that. And when there isn't oneness, it's just like when you go to the doctor and, hey, you, you have something wrong. Right, so like my dad just just had a, a skin cancer removed this week. We're so thankful he was able to go to the doctor a few months ago, and I'm going to the dermatologist in a month from now because I got a weird something right here. I don't know what it is, and it scared me. And right, I mean, we could like ignore it, but who knows what that could do? And that's the same thing. Whenever we're experiencing fissures or brokenness, it's not to, meant to be the shameful. We stink. It's like no, that you, we need to take care of that. We need to be more alert that that is, that is serious because this is who God is. It's all about oneness. It's all about oneness. A couple of obstacles, though, in this is, like I said before, we're all enculturated, and culture affects us all more than we know, more than we care to admit because the status quo works for all of us on some level. And our cultural milieu that uh, we've been in in the West for a while, it used to be what's someone smarter than me. His name's Charles Taylor. He's a great scholar. He, he's the one that coined this term. He said it used to be the age of duty. The highest value in our culture was conformity, which seems to kind of work with, with oneness on a certain level, and it did. As an example, when people were signing up to go overseas to fight in World War II, people were wanting to sign up to actually go risk their lives and put their lives on the line. There weren't bucket lists back then. People weren't like, well, if I do this, I may not get to my bucket list, and that's more important. You know, people would, the age of duty was, it was in people's unconscious minds because conformity was such a high value and that's where they received respect, honor. And it wasn't just in the military, it was in companies, it was in the home, it was everywhere. The age of duty was the, the cultural vibe, if you will. And even though that sounds good, in the late 60s, that was probably the pinnacle of church attendance, even in the United States at least, even though it sounds really good, the highest values being doctrinal loyalty and institutional loyalty is basically what that means. The issue, though, is you don't necessarily need God to, to sign the paper of a faith statement, <laughs> to believe something, in your head at least, and you don't necessarily need God to be loyal to something, even though you can be, of course, but you don't necessarily need God for that. And at the time, this really amazing theologian named A.W. Tozer he wrote this, and I think this can be emblematic of that time to a certain degree. He said this, if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, and he wrote this, I think in the 70s or 80s, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everyone would know the difference. It's an amazing quote from A.W. Tozer. So that's the kind of the danger of, of, even though the age of duty, there were a lot of great things that were happening during that time, there's also a danger that you can subscribe to institutional loyalty and doctrinal loyalty and not necessarily need God, and it may not feel, act, look like Jesus, not only in the community, but to the world. Fast forward to today, we now live in a time this, all these cultural shifts that I probably didn't know any convincing of, but it's been called the age of authenticity. And it sounds, it means a little bit different way that it sounds. What it means is that every individual unconsciously is responsible for their own kind of person formation, their own identity, creating their own personhood. And the biggest sin is any other person getting in the way of that. To put it another way, one of my favorite scholars said this, we live in a time, <clears throat> excuse me, we live in a time 
when we need what we want and our wants define who we are. And I found this really funny meme because it comes from a really funny movie. It's an Instagram meme. When your phone dies while you're out and you're left with your own thoughts, who am I? Because we kind of live in this time where, where our brands are fluctuating and we identify with these brands and we get anxious and depressed if we don't have our life a certain way because unconsciously we're all responsible for curating this life. And the danger of that, there's some good parts of that. There's actually some good things that we all have agency in and there's a, there's a myriad of, of good that comes with that. But what has also happened in this cultural shift is that even unconsciously relationships have become instrumentalized. And what that means is I'm with you and I'm with this group as long as it contributes to my own personal project. And as soon as it doesn't, for whatever reason, I'm out and I'm justifiably out. And it'd be weird if I wasn't out and people would tell me, why are you still there? Basically. It's just, it's, 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 I'm not, it's a little bit of a reduction. I, I understand that. But in a, in a sense, we live in this, this age of instrumentalization where our relationships are just instruments for us to get what we want, get what we think we need, et cetera, et cetera. So those are some obstacles of this oneness. But deep down, God knows at the core, we want and need something outside of ourselves, a Christ empowered community. And we actually need it for healing because the body does keep score. And I don't know about you, but even though there's something in me that wants to be in control, I want to curate my own life. I want people to do what I want them to do so I can get what I want. I mean, that's essentially what it is. I'm that way as much as anyone, but I'm older than a lot of you in here. I can tell you that that doesn't actually bring that much happiness, (laughs) me being in control. And I still have these, these aches and these longings that that I believe a healthy community, a Christ-empowered community, is a part of that healing. Because the body does keep score. And I, just like you, I have wounds. I have family wounds, church wounds, all sorts of wounds. Because at the end of the day, as Andy has talked about, our goal that God has created us for is to be response-able. To be response-able. So as I'm loved by God, I can love others in return. And that's how community is helpful in so many ways. And so when Paul says in the first part of this passage, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing one another in love, make every effort to keep the unity of the peace through the bond of peace. That can sound like a major burden at times. And I I really understand that. And if you think about how difficult that is, it sounds good. And even our egos could say, oh, I'm totally doing that right now. Oh, I'm, I'm crushing this. I'm slaying this humble thing. I am totally patient as I'll get out. But my, when I really am thoughtful about it, and when I'm open to God's uh, loving uh, teaching in my life, the people that I want to and feel like uh, love in my life are often the most difficult people for, for me to love, which is my, my immediate family, my wife and my kids. I want to love them. I really do. Please believe me. I want to love them. And yet they're the hardest for me to love at times. For me, that's just evidence I need, I need something outside of myself. I need God's grace outside of myself. And by the way, these particular virtues or values are, we take for granted that they're new in the, in the ancient world. These weren't valued in the ancient world. 
Aristotle wrote a lot about virtues, and he was one of the first that people would say, like, yeah, the, the, the purpose of a human being is to grow to become mature. So Paul didn't, like, introduce that language to the world. But the values to Aristotle were temperance, courage, nobility, and justice, which are great, but they could also lead to pride. And they could lead to the kind of this hero, this heroization of people. And so, so Paul and New Testament writers emanating from Jesus himself introduced these new virtues that would have been totally foreign to the ancient world and not looked well at. It would have looked, been looked at as weakness, total weakness. So when Paul says, be completely humble and gentle, not ancient, near, not ancient world values, that would have been considered weakness. Bearing with one another, be patient in love, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Those are charity, chastity, humility, forbearance. Those are unique contributions emanating from Jesus himself. You can look later if you want to write this down, Philippians 2, talking about God becoming a person, submitting God's self to the wrath of people. <laughs> Think about the humility that that takes, and that's who we're emanating from, and that's the source of our oneness. But we can't do it on our own. We completely need grace, even though we want and need a Christ-empowered community. can't do it without God's grace. We can't do it without something outside of ourselves, including the people in this room, really. And a lot of that, I think, has to do with We talk a lot about the incarnation of God becoming a person in Jesus. We talk a lot about the death, burial, and resurrection, and then we stop there. We don't talk about or teach a lot about the ascension of Christ, meaning the powers of Jesus that Paul is talking about that we need, patience, forbearance, humility. It's because Jesus is right now enacting his kingdom right now on earth as it is in heaven, even though it's not fully here yet even though it's not fully consummated yet. It's the power of Jesus now, in our lives now. And that's the reason why the ascension and theology of the ascension is so important to us today. It's so important to us today. One last commentary in this passage that's so important is in verse 7 when Paul later gets to, but to each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it said, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave his gift to his people. He's referring to Psalm 68. In the Jewish festival of Pentecost, they would, they're used to that scripture being read, that psalm being sung, because it highlighted God's uh, triumph over Israel's em- enemies through the earthly king, and then the spoils of those victories going to the people. And so Paul is using that psalm saying, look, Jesus has won. He is the greater Moses. He is the greater earthly king. He has won against the ultimate enemies, which is capital sin and capital death, the enemies that no human can destroy. Jesus has conquered those. And instead of the spoils being the normal spoils of battles like plunder, the spoils are the enemy is defeated, and now we are freed up to, to love one another. That's what he's saying. We've been in bondage. We haven't been able to love one another. Now we can be response-able because of Christ, because he has defeated those enemies of capital sin and capital death, which is like a disease that Jesus has eradicated if we align ourselves with Christ. That's why this is so key and so important and describes why we need Christ so much in our lives for this. We all have struggle. We all have trauma. We all have things unconsciously that will contest God's activity in our lives. That's just the culture we live in, that miracles are possible, etc. And yet, Paul is saying, because of Christ, those enemies have been defeated. 
Those enemies have been defeated. Those very obstacles to what we need. So the point is to lean into these in community, to lean into the healing that we might need because we all have body trauma, finding safe groups where we can talk about that the body keeps score, even in church community, ways that uh, our communities have failed us at times because we're human. But also, we've also been a part of that too. That's harder to admit and even consider. Like, wow, how have I been a part of someone else's brokenness within community? And even in God's grace and trust in that. But the solution is not to amputate. The solution is not to amputate ourselves and isolate ourselves and to take us away from healthy community, but instead to receive Christ-empoweredness to be that community to one another. That is the key. So Andy's going to talk about next week. I want to pass this out. If someone could have me pass these out, that would be fantastic. Anyone? Thank you so much. We took this from 3dmmovements.com. There's a website. I encourage everyone this week, if they want to, to take uh, their spiritual gifts test that Paul talks about specifically in Ephesians 4. This isn't an exhaustive list of the, of the gifts, but it's kind of instead of just individual gifts, it's really gifts for the church. And the reason why this is so important is because Paul says over and over again in the New Testament, the only way that we can love each other in this way, with forbearance, being completely humble and gentle and patient with one another, is in Christ. Outside of Christ, it's not possible. So in, in Christ, our role is to be in Christ together. And when I was growing up in the church, there used to be this idea that we need to be in the world for God. And that sounded very good. It sounded very triumphant. It sounded very obedient. It sounded... But the problem is it kind of makes us the star. It makes the church the star. And all of the power and energy is about us. We're in the world for God. And it can become a very us versus them. But in reality, our role is to be in Christ with one another. To be in Christ with one another. And that's where the power comes from. Because Christ is ascended, sits at the right hand of God. That's where the power comes from. We're to be in Christ for the world because God is for the world. God is for the world, even your enemies. God is for your enemies. God is for our enemies. We are to be in Christ for the world. And these gifts are not only for the church, the body. It is because our purpose as the body is to reflect God in the world. So if you're called to be an apostle, if you're called to be an evangelist, a prophet, a shepherd, a teacher, yes, it's to build up the body for oneness. Oneness. That's the first thing the body needs built up in so that we can be Christ in the world, to be Jesus' hands and feet in the world. Because God is in the world. God is for the world. We are to be in Christ for the world. Because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for all of us, whether people are inside this room or not. So consider your own gifts. What do you feel drawn to in terms of uh, apostleship. And you can see on this card, and we basically took all the language from this website. We credited them. They wrote this. We did not write this, but it's really good. Do you feel drawn towards taking new territory, new ideas, going to new groups of people? Do you often have a sensitivity to God? That would be more on the prophetic side. I sense that God could be directing us in these ways. I sense that God could be saying this, in full humility, in full patience, in full forbearance. Do you like to share good news about everything to everyone, like Andy? He will share about Christ to total strangers in Israel, and he'll share about 
uh, something that he loves that's not, he, he just shares good news. That's Andy. Do you feel like you have a sense towards people care for them like a shepherd would? Care about what happens to them, care about where they're going, care about where they're leading. Do you have a sense that God has used you in the past to help give insight to people that after they maybe talk with you or counsel with you, things are more clear? That could be more like a teacher. In any case, the oneness happens as each one participates in their gifts that God apportions, that God gives. We don't take the gifts, God gives them. It's actually more like a song. In verse 7, Paul is harking back to Ephesians chapter 2. It is by grace you have been saved, not by any good works that you've done. For we are God's masterpiece. Some translations, we are God's song. Some translations, we are God's poem. So we're, we're not the artists here. I like to say we're God's psalm. So much like a musician, we practice these things. Like the more someone knows how to learn to play the guitar like that, the more they can just play. They can just, they can just be enraptured by the music because they're not thinking about, is this an A chord? Is this a G chord? I'm not sure yet. Oh, my pinky's in the wrong place. They're enraptured in the music. You've, you probably have heard musicians talk about that. Man, I wrote this song in five minutes. It just came to me. I, I just was the vessel. That's how we are when we're participating in this oneness. Let's pray. God, thank you for your love and your care. You're calling us towards oneness. Thank you that we're released from the burden of coming up with our own identity, that we are in Christ. And the more we are in Christ, the actually more of ourselves we become and the more reflective of your body we become and the more fulfilled we become. It's gift after gift after gift after gift, the gifts that keeps on giving. Thank you, Jesus. And thank you for reminding us that we are in Christ for the world. We're not against the world. You're not against the world in that sense. You're for people as we are for people. And we can only be for people as we are for one another. That we be completely humble, gentle, bearing with one another in love and so fulfill the law of Christ. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for this community. Protect us with oneness, Jesus, as we live into the calling we've received. In your name we pray. Amen.